Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. If you will, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's go to Exodus chapter 40. We're gonna continue with this heart of worship and pleading with the Lord today. In Exodus chapter 40, we've got five verses left in these 40 chapters, and so let's get there. Uh, We've got a lot of scripture to cover this morning. Uh, So you know, I think we can put the scripture up on the screen. It's a lot, and so you need to take a picture of it or write some stuff down. Um, Also, we've canceled small groups and your lunch today. It's all been canceled. Thanks, Joel. Uh, I'm just just kidding. Uh, But this is all up here. Uh, We're gonna cover a good bit of it this morning, but I want you to see something here in scripture. I want you, I'm gonna make a statement And I want you to see, this is not just a statement that's from Exodus. This statement has been proclaimed throughout the scriptures. And so I want you to be able to see it here this morning. Like I said, it is the last part of our series in the book of Exodus. So next week we begin our Advent series. And so we'll begin a series on the birth of a king, the birth of Jesus from the gospel of Matthew. And so I wanna invite you back to that. All that stuff is happening, Christmas Eve service, all that is happening, but we begin a brand new series next week. But I don't want us to miss what's happening today. We've been in the book of Exodus since the beginning of January. And that is no small feat. Like I, I want to praise you for that, what you've endured to get through it. It was, it was tough there, wasn't it, for a few weeks? I mean, it was rough. A whole lot of measurements and fabrics and things that got a little rough for a little while there, but we made it. And so now we're here, and so I just wanna celebrate you and what you've done for many of you today. It's the first time you've ever read through a book of the Bible. And I want to encourage you in this way. There's no rush. If it takes you a year to read Exodus, it takes you a year, and God bless you. It takes some time to read his scriptures. And so I wanna encourage you in that way here this morning. So here we go. Let's go to Exodus chapter 40. We're gonna begin uh, in verse 34. I wanna get us through 38, and then I wanna try to wrap this all up in a way, hopefully that God speaks through me this morning. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Moses has finished the work of the tabernacle, and now the cloud of God's presence. It's been a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. Now that cloud that was on Mount Sinai has descended over the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That word glory in Hebrew is the word kavod. Say kavod. But now say it with meaning, kavod. Whatever, it's fine. We won't do that again. Uh, but it, what it, this word, there's a few words in the Hebrew for glory. This one is a weightedness, like it's heavy. It's a thick presence, the kavod. When the Bible says that the earth is saturated with the glory of God, that's what it's speaking of. It's that feeling when you walk into a room and you know that something is different, something important is about to happen. That's what that word is. Another word that's used is the word Shekinah, Shekinah glory. And that comes actually from the word of dwelling, to dwell in the Hebrew. So Shekinah glory is when this heavy presence of God dwells, when it's tangible, when you sense it. That's what Shekinah glory is. So this is the kavod of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We'll come back to that verse. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night 
in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So we've finished Exodus. And I think though, for many of us, what's happened is we've learned that Exodus is not about what we thought Exodus was about. It's interesting that for many of us, when you think of Exodus, you think of the 10 plagues, you think of the Red Sea, you might think of the manna, you think of the 10 commandments, maybe even the golden calf. But there's a whole lot more to Exodus than you thought there was, wasn't there? There's a lot more to it than we originally thought there was going to be. I don't know if you've ever experienced this at your house. Um, it seems like, uh, at least at my house, we, we have ideas that just turn into problems and then we've got to fix the problems, which gives us new ideas in our house. Ever happened for you? Like you're doing some kind of work. Uh, for us, it was trying to hang cabinets in our laundry room only to find the people who hung the cabinets before had hung it through a water pipe. And so when I took the cabinets down, that was a problem. And it's never easy. Uh, maybe for you, you moved into a house and you had more rooms in that house than you had before. And you were like, oh, this is so great to have all this space. And then what did you do? You bought more stuff to fill that space. And now you're like, ah, we park our car on the street because we don't have a garage anymore. And now we need to build a shed. And doesn't that happen for you? Well, what happens for us and happens for us scripturally is that when we begin with a poor understanding of a theology, we then have to overcorrect to correct our misunderstanding of that theology. This past week, uh, there was reports coming out of Mongolia of these goats who have been walking in circles for, I think today is day 16. I think we have a video of it. They've just been walking in circles in Mongolia. Just in circles. So the lady that owns these, um, these animals has said, yeah, I mean, at first started with like three or four of them. And then the next day they're like 25. I think at this point, there's up to like almost 200 goats just walking in circles in her, uh, in her land there, which is fascinating. And then what I love about the internet is that everybody has an idea about why it's happening. You know what I mean? Like everybody knows why. Well, I watched, the, I watched the, a veterinarian show, so I know exactly what's happening. Well, vets are coming out and saying, we're not exactly sure what's going on here. It could be a number of things. One thing they think maybe is that there's an illness inside of one of the sheep that makes it, <laughs> makes it lean left or right, makes it lean right. And so then it just makes these turns, which I think is the problem with NASCAR drivers is the same thing. Like you just, they just lean anyway. <laughs> and so what's happened though is now that goat has started other goats to doing this thing. Now what's sad is that the goats will not stop doing this until they dehydrate and die. They don't know why, they couldn't tell you why, this is just happening. Well, that's, that's great, except for that's not the only animal that does this. Did you know that ants do the same thing? This is gonna make you feel a little bit itchy inside, but ants, ants do this. And for ants, this is called the death spiral. See, ants follow a leader and the leader, um, lets out some kind of pheromone and that makes the other ants know which direction to follow. They just follow the scent of this pheromone wherever the ants are going. But if at any point that ant stops producing that pheromone or it gets um, off a little bit, this happens, this death spiral. And what happens with just one ant then turns into hundreds and then thousands of ants who continually march in circles until they die. And here's what's hit me this past week. This is our life. With a poor understanding of scripture and a poor understanding of who God is, we are not so different from the goats and the ants. Many of us in the room today will spend the rest of our lives marching in circles until we die. Because we've got something off in our view of God or in our view of theology past few Wednesday nights, we've been studying eschatology, which is the doctrine of the end times. 
And what we're learning is that if you build your entire theology or your view of God on an eschatology, on a view of the end times, you totally screw up who God is. The point of the end times is the end, it's the end. It's what you build everything to under, you build your understanding of God and that informs your view of the end times. But what happens for us, particularly in a Southern Baptist church, is that we've allowed a visions of streets of gold to inform then how we live our lives today. And that's affected then how we view the book of Exodus. You realize the book of Exodus didn't stop after the Red Sea. And that was a literal Exodus, right? I mean, that was it. The title of the book was done at that point. It didn't, it didn't stop after the Red Sea, didn't stop after the manna and the quail, didn't stop after the water from a rock, didn't stop after the Ten Commandments, uh, didn't stop even after the golden calf. The book of Exodus continues until the dwelling place of God is built. And then God dwells among his people. This is an old quote I wanna share with you, but I hope that it gets us thinking a bit and gets some things stirring in us. It's from a pastor in Minnesota named John Piper. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? And I know we're good Christians. We're like, yes, yes, absolutely, no. Does your life say that? When you dream of heaven, do you dream of the presence of God or do you dream of the presence of a grandparent who has gone on before you? When you dream of heaven, do you dream of streets of gold and a house bigger than the one you have now or do you dream of the presence of God in heaven? So we study this this morning. There's a thick, thick theme throughout scripture that God wants to be with his people. It's what he wants. That's what he has desired with us. The question is, do you really want to be with God? Do you want his presence? Or do you want the things he gives us? So as this story continues with this great point that God wants to be with his people, Let's do a bit of a recap of Exodus. God has set his people free from slavery in Egypt. They've been there 430 years. God sets them free and he brings them to Mount Sinai, which is the very mountain where Moses met God in the burning bush. He brings them back to that same place. And then he invites the people of God in Exodus 19, he invites them up the mountain. But as God descends upon the mountain and earthquakes and fire and things, the people begin to tremble in fear and decide they will not go up the mountain. So God then institutes this kind of three-layered approach to his presence. But God from there has invited people into his presence. He's trying to get us back to Eden, back to where things were as they should be. But because they won't come up to him, here's how gracious God is. God comes down to them. Exodus 25, verse eight, God tells Moses to tell the people, let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, that I may dwell in their midst. That word dwell is tabernacle, that I may tabernacle in their midst. God wants to be in the midst of his people. Verse nine, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. So when God wants to make it clear to his people that he wants to be with them, he instructs them to build a home for him, build me a dwelling place. 
Now, while Moses is up there getting the instructions of the tabernacle, the people down at the base of the mountain who were afraid to come up to God begin to worship the golden calf. Is that just like us? When God's making plans to come to us, we're too busy trying to supplement him with something else we're trying to worship, whether it's a, a spouse or a kid or travel ball or social media, whatever it is, God's trying to get to us. And we're like, yeah, 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 but I got this thing I gotta do. So they're doing that. Moses comes back down and then goes back up to intercede for God. And I believe this moment is pivotal for Moses because you've got to remember back in Exodus three, Moses didn't want this job. He tried to talk God out of it. There's gotta be somebody better than me. But now at this point, we're close to uh, six months or so later, something happens for him. Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. At this point, God had said, I'm done with these people. They're stiff-necked people. I'm not going with you any further. I'll send you an angel to lead you. I'm out. And so Moses goes back up and says, well, you, you wanted them first, and now you're saying you don't, but you're not even telling me who's gonna lead us. But you said to me, I know you by name. It seems like I have favor with you. You found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Moses says to God, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Oh, and by the way, consider this nation, these Israelites, they're your people. And then verse 14, God says to Moses, fine, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses says to God, if I ain't got you, I don't want nobody, baby. He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Remember, God's promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. He's promised them this place. And Moses says, listen, but if I get all of that, but I don't have you, I don't want it. If I get all of it, if I get everything I've ever wanted, if I get my marriage restored and if I get my kids saved and if I get their behavior figured out, if I get my financial situation figured out, if I get all of that, but I lose you, I don't want any of that. And Moses has this moment of realizing, oh, the prize is not the promised land. The prize is God. That's the prize. And if he's gonna remove his presence, then I don't even want the promised land. For that, verse 16, for how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? He says, I've realized something, God, that it's your presence that makes us distinct. You know what makes us as Christians different than the world? It's not how we vote, and it's not how we post, and it's not how we drive. No, that's true. It's that God is with us. That's what's different. That's what's different about when we gather together on a Sunday morning. That is what's different between going here and going between the hedges in Athens. This is what's different, that the presence of God is with us. And Moses says, I get it now. That's what makes us distinct. Please go with us. So they build the tabernacle. We read in verse Exodus 40 that God descends and occupies the tabernacle now. But this tabernacle isn't the end of the story. It's not the point. The point is the dwelling place of God. And so for about 480 years, the people of God carry the tabernacle with them. And they finally end up in the promised land. And in there, they still put the tabernacle up. 
And the Israelites, long story short, they want a king. God gives them a king and Saul. Saul is not a very good king. So then comes David, King David, who is the king. And in 2 Samuel, we read this, 2 Samuel chapter seven, that when the king, this is David, lived in his house and saw that the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Life is good for David. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell, I tabernacle in a house of cedar, but the ark of God tabernacles in a tent. It only took him 480 years to realize something's wrong here. God gets a tent and I get a house made of cedar. And so David wants to build God a, a new home. He wants to build him a temple. And God says, no, you can't. Um, but it's a good thing you want. I'm gonna let your son Solomon, he'll build me a temple in Jerusalem. So 480 years after God inhabits and takes over the tabernacle, now we build, they build for him a temple. And similarly in the temple, now in Jerusalem, this singular temple, God comes to take up residence. This is 1 Kings chapter eight, verse six. And the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. This temple is built to look just like the tabernacle, only no more tent, now it's built out of uh, strong material. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles, and the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. They're there to this day. Look at verse nine, there was nothing in the Ark except the two tablets of stone, the 10 commandments that Moses put there at Horeb. Horeb is another way of saying Sinai, essentially. Where the Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. Sound familiar? So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. That should sound familiar. For the glory, the kavod of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So here's what you're gonna to begin to see throughout the narrative of scripture. God wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell with his people and we can't get up to him and so he's coming to us. In the garden, he was with Adam and Eve. He was with humanity. They broke that relationship and so now God is doing the work to get back to us. So it's a tabernacle in the wilderness. Now it's a temple in Jerusalem structured the same way and this theme is going to carry forward. Except in Ezekiel chapter 10, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of the temple in Jerusalem, but in this vision, he sees the cloud of God's uh, Shekinah glory raise up off of the, of the temple and move eastward. And so he declares to the people of God, there's coming a day where God will remove his presence from you if you don't act right. You've lost it. You've lost the worship of the one true king and he will remove his presence. Well, not too long after that, four years later, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, you know him, he's in the VeggieTales movies. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, comes in and destroys the temple in Jerusalem. This place where God's presence and home were is now gone and it feels like all is lost. And from there, the Israelites enter 400 years of God being silent, not speaking through prophets. There's no more Shekinah glory and they're left without until, until Christmas. Matthew chapter one, verse 20. Joseph has been told, there's some shady things happening with Mary. 
As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God wants to be with his people. We can't get to him. He's coming to get us. So we saw it in the tabernacle. We saw it in the temple. And now we see it in the person of Jesus. The apostle John describes this a bit differently. In John chapter one, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his kavod. We have seen his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God wants to be with his people. He wants to be with you and with me. He wants to be in our midst. He wants to be among us. But for some reason, we keep running from the presence of God and God keeps running after us. It's the tabernacle, it's the temple, and now it's Jesus himself. Well, Jesus enters this, the picture, but there's still, a ta- there's still a new temple in Jerusalem. It had been rebuilt, so there's now a temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus goes to a wedding in John chapter two, and Jesus turns water into wine. It's his first miracle. And then not too long after that is Passover. John chapter two, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, which should have been the dwelling place of God, He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So what would happen is people would travel from all over to get to Jerusalem for sacrifices at the Passover. And so it would be too much to bring all the animals with you. And so they decided, we'll just stop at the quick trip on the way and we'll get our own. And the temple's like, quick trip on the way, we can make some money off of it. Let's just sell it in our courtyard because this built a lot like the tabernacle. And so they begin selling sacrificial animals in the courtyard. And they're not selling them cheap. And so they're making money hand over fist from these people coming to sacrifice because they were told they had to sacrifice. And Jesus steps in and sees this happening. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, all right, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it up in three days? But then John says in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body because God had come to tabernacle with his people. Jesus had become the new temple because he is the new temple because the old temple has been turned over to the enemy. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So this idea now has moved from the tabernacle to the temple to the body of Jesus himself. Jesus is crucified on the cross, paying the debt for our sins. He raises from the dead on the third day. And then 50 days after Passover is what was called Pentecost. We studied that a bit a few months ago. Pentecost, 50th day. And the people of God now are in an upper room in Jerusalem. Acts chapter two, verse one. When the, peop- when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled, does that sound familiar? And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. But then watch this in verse three, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So please notice what's happening. Exodus, God is leading his people by a pillar of fire, one singular pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. Get to the temple, there's still fire, there's still smoke. The fire is in the temple. The smoke is in the, the presence of God. Jesus comes and he became, becomes the temple. His body is sacrificed. The temple is destroyed. He raises it back up three days later. Then Jesus ascends into heaven and God again comes to be with his people and he sends again, he sends fire. But the difference now of the fire is that it's not one pillar, it's a bunch of flames over each and every person, which tells us this, the manifest Shekinah glory of God is no longer in a temple, now it's in you and in me if you're following Jesus. God wants to be with his people and he is persistent about it. He just can't quit you. He keeps showing up. And so now what was in a temple in Jerusalem is now in you and in me. Which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The presence of God, the manifest Shekinah glory of God now dwells in you which means when you go to work, when you're in your cubicle, when you're teaching your classroom, when you're mowing the lawns, when you're in the warehouse, when you're on the assembly line, the Shekinah glory of God that filled the tabernacle has filled you. You, the presence of God is in you. He wants to be with his people. And it continues all the way through Revelation, Revelation 21, verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, this is John having a vision that says, behold, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacling place of God is where? It's with man. He will tabernacle with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. In the end of days, this is the point. The point is that God wants to be with us and he wants us with him. That's the entire point of the scriptures. And yet we've made it about something else. And so when you get what you want from God, when you get, uh, we're gonna call it salvation, when you, when you get that from God, you're done with God's presence. And God's saying, that's not the point. The point of salvation, the point of your freedom was to get into my presence again. And it's why if you're following Jesus and you feel like um, it's just boring and mundane and you feel like he's distant. It's because you've taken the gift of salvation and you've stopped there and haven't moved into, no, 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 no. He's Shekinah glory. The presence of God is with you. It's with you. The whole point of the scriptures. But while we focus on streets of gold, while we focus on loved ones who have gone before, we're just goats marching in a circle until we die. The point of the scriptures is that God has come to be with us. He's come to be with you and with me. He's come to dwell among us. But you noticed it back in Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It's not that the glory of the Lord made it so full Moses didn't fit. That's not what's happening here. 
What's happening is that a holy set apart God has demanded perfection from his people. And Moses isn't perfect. So he can't enter the presence of God. But here's what's beautiful about the Bible. It doesn't end with Exodus 40. The Bible then turns to Leviticus and the whole point of Leviticus is how we get clean to get into the presence of God. But even bigger than that, Leviticus points us to Jesus. As Jesus is on the cross and he is being murdered for our sins, willingly giving his life to draw us back into the presence of God. He's on the cross and in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple, Jesus, was broken. And in that moment, the thing that separated the world from the holy presence of God was torn in two, which grants us access now to the presence of God at this place. Jesus fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. And he fulfills that thing that the writer of Ecclesiastes says is eternity in your heart. You desire God's presence. You don't know that. I don't know that until we read it and learn it. So we're searching for things that satisfy. We're searching for relationships and money and sex and drugs and addiction. We're searching for things that can make us feel satisfied. And in God's grace, he allows us to reach a point of desperation where it's only he who satisfies. And the invitation is that he split it wide open to get into his presence. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to philosophers at Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and he's speaking to all these philosophers. And he notices they've got idols everywhere, but there's one idol he recognized that on its nameplate says, to the unknown God. And Paul says, I think I know who this God is. And he begins to tell them who this God is. This is who you're worshiping. And he says in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their tabernacling places, that they should seek God and in hope that they might find their way toward him and find him yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Here's what Paul is saying to the people, the philosophers. What you are searching for, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, it's right here in your midst. But you're searching for so many different things, you are missing it. And then he quotes their philosophers. In him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So I say all that to say this. I don't want us to be goats walking in circles. I don't want us to be ants meandering through the death spiral. The point of the Exodus is that God has set his people free from slavery in Egypt to be drawn into his presence. The point of the gospel is this. You've been set free from your slavery to sin, not to be drawn into heaven, but to be drawn into the presence of God the very thing your heart desires and longs for. For many of us, what's happened is that we've lost that desire. Those of you who are married, do you remember when you were dating or when you first got married and you loved being around that person? Like you, you obsessed about being with that person. You even, you even changed plans to be with that person and not because they made you feel guilty about it because you actually wanted to. Like you changed your plans, you stopped playing softball, whatever it was, because you're gonna be with that person. 
And so now what's happened is you've changed your plans to avoid being with that person. You've, you've made your plan, you're, oh, I'm too busy, or I gotta, I gotta work late. It's the same thing for us with God. There was a moment where you actually wanted him. But over time, you've got the illness of consumerism, you've got the illness of addiction or the illness of sin, and now it's no longer him that you want. But it's something completely different. And in our brokenness, we feel weary and burdened. Like, I don't know how to get back there. Well, here's the beauty about the God, about God being in our midst. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my understanding of scripture upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God wants to be with his people. And he's come, Emmanuel, that we might be with him. And yet, we walk in shame cycles and death spirals that keep us from the very presence of God. The Old Testament, King David was a good king, but he wasn't a perfect man. And David is busted in his sin. He's busted in adultery, and he's busted in murder, and a confession is forced out of him. And Psalm chapter 51 is his plea of repentance and confession, Psalm 51. If you read through it, you gotta notice a few things. He doesn't pray that God restores relationships, doesn't pray that God heals, doesn't pray that God... What he begs for is this, in Psalm 51, verse one, or 11, cast not your, away your presence. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. What David realizes he needs more than anything is the presence of God. He's not begging for the tricks and trinkets of God. He's begging for the presence of God. I think what's happened to us, and it's why we read Exodus the way we do improperly, is because we'd rather have the things of God than have the presence of God. But in his brokenness, David says, ah, of all the things I could ask for, please don't take your presence from me. If it costs me my son, it costs me my son. If it costs me relationships, it costs me relationships. But I need you. I need your presence. Don't take it from me. And yet for many of us, we find ourselves saying, God, I'd rather you do this than have your presence. God, restore my marriage, even if it costs me your presence. What if God is working in your broken marriage to bring you his presence? What if that's happening? What if what God knows more than anything is what, what you need more than a spouse and more than good kids is that you need him. And what's happened is you've made those things your golden calf and God is saying, you forget the point, I'm tabernacling and I'm coming for you. And if it leads us in places of brokenness that we might find him there, then our cry would be this from Psalm 51, verse 12. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. As Brandon comes up, I, just, I want us to wrestle with this just for a second. What do you actually want? Do you want the miracles of God or do you want the presence of God? Do you want the restoration of God? It's a good thing. Or the presence of God. 
And if the presence of God costs you your comfort and costs you your dreams, do you still want it? Back to the question from Piper. If you get everything you ever wanted in heaven but don't have God, do you still want to go? We've got three kids and um, the youngest one, Landry, is a little girl, a six-year-old girl. And she, she loves her daddy. Like She loves me. And I don't say that arrogantly. I just... I'm just the best. And so she loves me. I'm just kidding. Uh, but she always has kind of been drawn to me. And when she was younger, and even now, like the boys have outgrown this, um, but for her right now, like she wants nothing more than just to be with me. She just wants to be with me. If I'm sitting on a couch watching, a, sitting on the couch watching the football game. She wants to be with me, like really, really close to me all the time. And there are times when I'll just have to go run kind of meaningless errands. Not, I'm not going to get Barbies, nothing like that. I'm going to Lowe's or Ace or whatever. And I'll just say, hey, I'm going out. I'm going to Ace. Anybody want to go with me? I get nothing from the boys because they're playing video games and can't hear me because their headsets are on. And uh, Landry comes zooming down the stairs to the garage door. says, I want to go. And she always says, I want to go whip you. I want to go whip you. And it reminds me, I wanna be that way with God again. You read at the end of Exodus 40 that whenever God moved, they moved with him. Whenever he ran an errand, they wanted to go with him. And I wanna be that way again. Are you with me? Like, I, I wanna desire that again. I wanna be like, God, wherever you're going, I'm going with you. You've given me so much, but if, if it costs me this to be with you, I'm going, I'm going. So this morning, I don't, I don't know where you find yourself today, but I would imagine if you're like me, you've gone through seasons of really not desiring the presence of God as much as you used to. Because you've got other things you need, other things you want him to do. And what God is saying is that in my presence, there's fullness of joy. So maybe you're anxious and you're tired and you're frustrated and you're confused. Maybe you're um, just overwhelmed. Point of scripture is that God wants to be with you. Broken, jacked up you. He wants to be with you. Because he loves you. And the best thing for you is to be with him. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes and I want us to wrestle a few questions here this morning. So we wrap up this book of Exodus and so many things we could talk about, the glory of God. But when Moses asks for the glory of God to be seen, God says, I want to show you my goodness. So I think the first question you have to answer is, do you really want God? Or do you want the promised land? And I will tell you, the pursuit of the promised land, if that's your pursuit, you got 39 more years after the close of Exodus before you get there. But if your pursuit is the presence of God, you can have it right now. It's a God who said he'll never leave us or forsake us. And parents, what your kids need more than anything it's the presence of God in your life and in your home. They need the Shekinah glory, the manifest presence of God there. 
not because you have it on a sign in the living room, but because God is in their midst. Husbands, what your wife needs more than flowers, more than jewelry, more than you to do the dishes. She needs to manifest presence of God in your life. Students, what you need more than anything is the presence of God in your life. So the question this morning is, is that what you want? And if you do, he's not that far from you. He's here. Manifest Shekinah glory of God is here today. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that same smoke and fire that filled the tabernacle now fills you. So it means a few things. Whatever you're facing stands no chance against the presence of God in you. It means whatever you're afraid of, do not fear, for I am with you. means wherever you're going today, God's with you. Maybe you're here today and your experience is that you're actually weary and heavy laden. You're burdened from the pursuit of filling that void with so many things. You've made um, relationships an idol. You've made school an idol. You've made sports an idol. You've made social media an idol and it hasn't satisfied and you're weary. Well, Acts 17 tells us that God is not that far from you and you can find him where you are today. That the finished work of Jesus on the cross has opened a way into the presence of God. That you don't have to be perfect because Jesus was. And he came for you, to be with you. Father, we love you. What a gift it is to have your word, to not have to guess about who you are and what your character is like but to be able to read it and learn it and know it. And what we've learned in Exodus is that your character is a steadfast love of your people, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And in your steadfast love, you have a steadfast pursuit of us that we see from the beginning of time to the end of time, that your desire is to be with us. So God, I'm asking you to open our eyes to your presence today. And that by being in your presence, it would satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Would you forgive us for the times that we've sought other things, that we've uh, worshiped golden calves and be recognized as saying, if it's not with you, God, I don't want it. So would you create in us a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.